Christmas Church uh, at this time. Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up to uh, Romans uh, chapter 8 this morning. We're in Romans chapter 8. We will be looking at verses 28 uh, through 30 this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who God loved, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just praise you for your goodness and your kindness. We praise you uh, for your love and the way that you have worked out salvation so that from start to finish, uh, salvation is the work of God, that we contribute nothing to salvation. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. We never are able to pay you back for it. And yet you, in your goodness, from before the foundations of the world, had determined a plan to save a people. You had predestined us to this. And then, in the fullness of time, you carried it out through the working of the Son. And now, even through the work of the Holy Spirit, as he draws us to saving faith. We pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear what you have for us in this passage. Uh, Give me the words to say... Uh, May your word of God just uh, resonate in our hearts and and bring us uh, to continual growth and and pour out refreshing waters uh, upon us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We need to be a people who have confidence in God. We need to have confidence in God's working of redemption. Even as I said in my prayer, so that... From start to finish, salvation is a work of God. Who gets all of the credit? God does. The last person I want to give credit to in the working of salvation is myself. For I should know who I am in my sin. We are in a passage of Scripture where Paul is is moving along into a section where he is going to give the believers great comfort. He's going to talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He has already said, as we talked about last week, how the Spirit of God is within us, praying as our intercessor in our times of weakness. This is sort of where we find ourselves on the road to glory. The road to our Uh, heavenly glory in the resurrection. And so we saw earlier that the whole creation was groaning and we ourselves are groaning, waiting for the first uh, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, our full adoption as sons. So that even though in in the plan and purpose of God, when we are saved, we are children of God, we are sons, we are heirs of the kingdom. We still have this final inheritance that we're waiting for. And so in the midst of this, with all the trials, with all the struggles, with all the weaknesses, we need to have confidence in God. If you've ever been in a very difficult situation, the last person you want to have confidence in 
is in yourself. If you've ever been in, in something like depression or something where you are just overburdened and all you can do is cry out to God, the last thing you want in those circumstances is to trust yourselves because you know how broken you are. Instead, we turn to God and we find all the confidence that we need resides in Him. Have confidence in God's redemption. We're going to talk about that this morning from this passage. Just keep in mind the context uh, of where we're going. But we're only doing these three verses today because there's just so much uh, to unpack in these verses. First, this morning, have confidence that God will work His purposes to the end. So look at verse 28. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So we have this verse and many of us are probably very familiar with this verse, but we often don't pay attention to the whole context of the verse. Keep in mind here, loving God is not the condition for having God work things out in your life. Rather, it's saying we know that as those who love God, who have come to experience God's love and in return love Him, we know what He has done for us. And this is where the next two verses will go. When you understand what God has done for you and is doing and will bring to completion, you can look back at everything that goes on in your life, good or bad, and say, I know that God has a plan according to his purposes. Let me just make a comment here uh, about using this verse appropriately. And I'll make the comment in way of telling a true story. Uh, My dad, uh, one time, uh, a former boss of his, who was also a close friend, uh, passed away. And so my dad went over to the lady's house. They were the, the Family uh, was believers. In fact, we'd gone to the same church for a number of years. Uh, he went over just to, to be with them, to comfort them, to minister them. Uh, just honestly, as he tells it, I wasn't there. He, he just spent time crying with them. Uh, and Scripture even says in Romans 12:15 that we should weep with those who weep. Uh, the pastor came in. Uh, spent a little bit of time with, with the family. Uh, it wasn't very much read for them a Bible verse, and left. Guess which verse he read? He read Romans 8.28. Uh, he, he read, you know, and we know that all things uh, work together. For those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according, uh, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, the scriptures say in Proverbs 25.11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Let me say that using that verse in that way at that moment was not apples of gold in settings of silver. It it actually was kind of callous. Is, Is this verse true? Absolutely. Is it true in all circumstances? Absolutely. Do we need to know that all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose? That even in our trials and our struggles, that God has a plan Yes, absolutely. But we don't want to be like Job's friends who just go into a situation and drop some sort of truth bomb and then walk away. This is something that that sometimes it's not the right verse to say at that moment. Not that it's the wrong verse, 
but there's a time and a place to use different verses of Scripture. So I just throw that out there uh, as, as a caution uh, for you. Learn from this verse. But next time someone's suffering, don't make this the first verse that you go to, is all that I'm saying. Uh, and my dad had a very real experience with that. However, God does indeed work good. We need to recognize the plan and purpose of God. And we need to know. And oftentimes we need to know these things before we get into hardships. We need to prepare ourselves for understanding God does what is right and good. Uh, If some of you know the name uh, Dan Allen, you'll know that when he was a young man, uh, his father uh, died unexpectedly in a car accident. And then about, how many years ago was it now? Two years, maybe three years ago, uh, his son, one of his sons, died unexpectedly in a car accident. The son had a young uh, child. Uh, He was about a year old or so uh, at the time, or less than a year old. And Dan Allen would often say in his preaching, both before and after those events, God is good, and God is good all the time. And so I don't try to say that in a calloused way, but in a very real way, we must recognize the goodness of God. And we recognize it in how he acts to accomplish salvation on our behalf. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we need to say up front that, that you cannot take the word good here and, and put on it your own definition. You can't take good and, and throw on it sort of the American dream. Well, this is what it means to ha- for God to be good, for me to have riches, for me to have two cars in the garage or a third car or an extra house or whatever it might be. This isn't the, a sort of your best life now approach to things. This is not a, a prosperity gospel that if you just follow God, nothing bad will ever happen in your life. You will never have any difficulties or trials. In fact, Paul has been telling us the exact opposite. We do have weakness. We do wait for redemption. There is suffering in this life. In fact, he says in verse 17, if you go back up in the context, chapter 8, verse 17. Let me read just verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The path that God often walks the believer through in this life is one of suffering, one of difficulty, one of weaknesses, where we have nothing but to cry out to God. And that's a good thing because it teaches us that God is all that we need in those moments. And we need to know that God works for our good. That this suffering is the path that He has called us to walk to our glorification, to our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. God works all things for good. And we have this sure and confident hope. It doesn't mean that we're going to know 
how this is good. Sometimes we go through a, a real trial and we look back at it, maybe even years back, and we say, I don't know exactly why God did this or use it, used it, but I trust God. Sometimes good as we would define it is not how good as God would define it. Sometimes there are things in this life that never get resolved, but you can trust that God will solve them on the day of judgment. And that's not sort of a, a mean, vindicative kind of, kind of approach, but to say, if you continue to walk in faith with God, you will see the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of your body. Sometimes we pray for illnesses to go away, and God never takes them away. Trials and tribulations of this life may be the flames for fire that purify silver and gold. And this is good. Notice that it says that He works together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So, we're going to talk about this word call here in the next section. But this is the work of God in our hearts to call us to salvation. And when God calls us to salvation, He does it according to His purposes. That God has a plan and purpose that is far bigger and beyond what we can grasp and understand. God has called the believer to salvation. And that's part of His purpose. This word comes up a couple times in Scripture. Romans 9.11 Though they were not yet born, this is talking about the twins, Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 11, in him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that two things there. God has predestined people to himself according to his purpose. And notice also God works all things. Everything. Everything in life, God works according to to the counsel of His will. Now some of that, He actively works it. And some of that, He passively allows it. So that God is not the author of sin, but sometimes in the plan and purpose of God, He allows someone to fall into sin or He allows tremendous evil to take place. And yet, in those times where that person is actively rebelling against God, God will still have the last and final word. God doesn't wake up and say, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. Okay, what do I need to do now to fix this? It doesn't make God the author of sin. But it does mean when someone acts, God wasn't caught off guard. God's plan isn't thwarted. God is being rebelled against, but God is only being rebelled against because He's allowing it in those moments. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling because of, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Notice here the contrast both in Romans 9.11 and 2 Timothy 1.9. So, works 
which we are not saved by. And so if you have a, a view of salvation by works or by something that we do, you, you have a misunderstanding of the gospel. He contrasts that with the working of God. God doing his purposes, which includes calling people to saving faith. God has an internal plan from the floor of the foundations of the world, and he has predestined people unto salvation, not because of their works and not because he sees some potential in us, but because God has determined to reach people with his grace. He has called people to salvation and he has enacted salvation to that end. Let me just make some applications with this first part. First, ask yourself this question. How do I know God works for good? Like, how do I know? If, if you get in moments of, of experiences and trials and you are only looking at the immediate circumstances, you are not going to feel like God is doing something good at that moment. And I think we can be honest with God in our, in our cries at those times and say, God, I, I just don't know what you're doing. I have to trust you. But, you know, maybe a loved one died, someone close to us, and it doesn't feel good. And we're not supposed to pretend it's not painful. Death is still a sting, as Scripture describes it. But how do I know that God works all things for good? Look at your salvation. Who accomplished your salvation. Who did it? God did. And if God did that to save you, don't you think He will do other things for your benefit? When you and I had nothing to bring before God, no goodness and righteousness in and of ourselves, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Don't you think God cares about you? If he went that far when you were already a sinner, who gets the credit in your salvation? God was salvation something that I had an inherent right to. Did I deserve it? No. Who planned it and accomplished it? God. Don't you think that in that moment of trials, that if God could plan and purpose and accomplish all those things that he does in our salvation, that that trial that you are going through, and I don't want to make it insignificant or minor, but don't you think that God can also use it for your good? It may never feel good in this life, but you may get to the next life and begin to understand God used that. Maybe it made me more dependent upon Him. Maybe it made me trust Him more. Maybe I got to a point where I was saying, all I really have is you, God. And it showed me that that was all that I really needed. That I had some inherent selfishness in me. Or maybe some, some inherent self-reliance. That I'm the kind of person that goes through life and says, I got this. I can handle it. I only go to God for the really big things. Just so He'll give me a little boost. And God just sent you through some situation where you said, I got nothing. And it made you see the goodness of God. I don't know what your circumstances are, and we've all been through many different things and experiences, but salvation is a work of God that He's purposed it from the beginning. He works it out, and He carries it through to completion. And God will use events and experiences in your life 
to transform you to bear the image of Jesus. Just like you might rub hard on the family uh, silver or window or whatever it might be to get the dirt out, to shine it. So sometimes God works hard in our life and applies a little bit of suffering and a little bit of trial into our life so that he can polish us and make us shine like Jesus. Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you uh, for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Have a confidence in God in the midst of suffering. Have a confidence in God. And this is our second point this morning. Have a confidence in God's predestining plan. This is a tough topic. Some of us don't like the idea that, that God might actually have predestination. We're doing like we always do. We go through Scripture. This is what the passage talks about. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we start out with this passage and we see that that God has foreknown a particular people. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. He's talking about people and he's saying, I foreknew them. For no is a term of relationship. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, the word no in the Hebrew is also a term of relationship. And it can have various levels of depth to that relationship. So, for example, if you have the Old King James, I think it's in the Old King James, it says Adam knew his wife. And anybody in the room who's like eighth grade and above knows what that word means, right? Adam knew his wife. Uh, We know that it's not just, well, you know, he said, hi, how are you? There was an intimacy there. There was a relationship. There was a connection. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God doesn't say to Jeremiah, Before I... I formed you in the womb. I knew some things about you. I knew that what you'd be like. I knew what you would do. He doesn't say, I foresaw some things that were going to happen in your life. He says, before I formed you, I knew you. I had a relationship with you. You weren't even around yet. But I planned this. I purposed this. And I knew you before I even formed you. Then he says, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Why is Jeremiah a prophet? Because God knew Jeremiah and appointed him to that task. God intimately determined before Jeremiah existed that this was his destiny. God didn't say to Jeremiah, I saw that you would be a good prophet. And so I decided to appoint you a prophet. God said, I knew you. I knew you. I had a relationship in my mind that I am going to do this and make you this way and, and, and call you to this task. 
Amos chapter 3, verse 2, speaking about Israel, God says, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Now, now think about that for a minute. This is not like God didn't know about other uh, nations. Egypt, uh, never heard of them. I've only heard of Israel. Babylon, who are these people? He says, when he says, you only have I known. It means you only did I enter into a covenant with. Did I have a, a relationship with, an intimacy with. Genesis 18:19 Most of your English translations will translate it this way speaking of Genesis or speaking of Abraham for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord The Hebrew actually says this for I have known him Who determined to know Abraham Did God, or excuse me, who determined this relationship between Abraham and God? Did Abraham determine, well, I think I'm going to know God. No, God said, I have known him. And I've made this covenant with him. And I've entered into this with him. I pursued Abraham. Abraham didn't pursue me. God foreknows a people. He chooses a relationship with a particular people not based on who we will be or the things that He foresees in us or about us, but based on His sovereign purposes. Imagine if God's relationship with me was conditional on who He saw that I would be and act like. Who do we act like in our sins? Where do we stand before God in our sins? Where are we? As, as we come into the world, we are born dead in our sins. We enjoy rebelling against God. If God said, well, I'm going to look and see how people are acting, and then I'm going to decide if I want to save them, nobody would get saved. No one. Myself included. God is the one who initiates the relationship, who initiates grace. Let me just give you an example to, to spell out for you how foreknow is not the same word as the word to foresee. If you are in a class at school and there is a test coming up, the students can foreknow or foresee that a test is coming up. How do the students come to foresee that a test is coming up? The teacher tells them, right? They can know these things ahead of time. Why? Because the teacher tells them. How does the teacher foreknow that a test is coming up? Does the test like magically appear on the calendar and then the teacher goes, okay, well, that's when the test will be. No. The teacher plans and determines it ahead of time. The teacher schedules the calendar. And so it is, God says in Isaiah 43, verse 10, that He is the one declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. He's saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purposes. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according 
to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11, which we've already read. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We come to saving faith because God foreknew us as individual people. He chose to have a relationship with us, to know us. He did this before we existed. God does not foreknow me because I respond to Him or know Him. Rather, His foreknowing me brings me to Him and causes me to respond to His work. God is the one that works salvation. And so we see moving along in this passage, God predestines. It says those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of uh, his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So those who he knows, he foreknows, he also predestines us to this end. What is that end? To make us like Jesus. To make us like Jesus. That Jesus would die on the cross for us. That the Holy Spirit would work in our life. And what is the outcome of all that? That we would be transformed. What is God's goal for your life? I don't know what His plan for you tomorrow is. But I can tell you that His ultimate end for you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to make you look like Jesus. That's how you know that God works all things for good. Because you know where He is headed. And you know that His plan uh, cannot be thwarted. It's, it's sort of like, you know, sometimes when you're driving with your kids and they're like, where are we going? Where are we going? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you're like, stop! Did you ever have kids in the backseat of the car that think they know how to drive better than you, you know, oh, we should go this way. Oh, let's, well, why aren't we going that way? Well, why didn't we turn here? You can tell them where you're going and they still think sometimes they know how to get there better than you. I just had a conversation with one of my daughters yesterday where I said, I'm the one with the driver's license. Uh, You know the end. You know that he wants to conform you to his image. Trust the road that he has you on. Trust God. Do you think that if God predestined these things for you and for your life, that you would look more like Jesus at the end? Do you think his plan is going to be thwarted? Do you think some uh, temporary trial, no matter how bad it is, can overturn the hand of God? That God can be striving in such a way and all of a sudden some giant catastrophe goes up and it's like God was arm wrestling and all of a sudden, boom, he lost. No. This is God that we're talking about. It's sad. We do live in a day and age where there's a lot of false teaching out there and they're actually about 15, 18 years ago, there was a, a teaching that was starting to become prominent even in some evangelical churches that said, God doesn't even completely or entirely know the future. That's horrible. 
That's horrible. How can you even be assured then that God will be able to accomplish his purposes? Notice also that God's purpose is is that Jesus might be the firstborn among the brethren in order that he, Jesus, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. This goes back to verse 17, that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God's plan and purpose, you read it in the book of Acts, that, that he had a determined plan and predestination that Jesus would die on the cross and rise again from the dead. And God's goal is to make him the firstborn. He gets the first resurrection that the rest of us, as brothers and sisters, adopted into the family, we become a part of it. We get the inheritance. We get the resurrection. So the eternal Son becomes like us in His humanity, then dies and is glorified so that I could be conformed to His image. So that I could share in the future glory of resurrected humanity. Who did this work? Who is accomplishing it from start to finish? God. Have confidence in God. God predestines a certain people to become saved and to be transformed to bear Jesus' image. This is how I know that God works for the good for all whom He has called. Third, this morning, have confidence in the completion of God's plan. Those He predestined, He also called. It says, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. God is the initiator of grace where He inwardly and effectively draws the sinner to Himself. Listen to Romans 4.17 And as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, speaking of Abraham, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Remember how she was barren? Who initiated the pregnancy there? She was barren. Her womb was as good as dead. And God says, you are going to have a child. And what does she do? She laughs. Don't be too hard on her. Abraham laughed too. It was just in an earlier chapter. But God calls into existence. Now, we know that he uses the normal process of procreation. But he calls life back to her womb so that they could unite and in matrimony, and, and have a child. But God is the one who does the work. So it is with us. When we come to saving, when we come to see who the Lord Jesus Christ is, we believe in Him. We put our trust in Him. We need to believe. But God's the one who initiates it, who opens our eyes, who calls forth and speaks light into the heart that is dark, who speaks life into the soul that is dead. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's something that is a bit ironic. Many Christians would utterly and rightly reject evolution. 
that plants and creation didn't just start, you know, forming on their own. Why? Because God did it. But where do we think faith comes from sometimes? I started it. God was waiting for me to respond. You don't believe in evolution. Don't follow that logic into your life with faith. I hope I'm making sense here. But the logic is this. If God created something out of nothing at creation, God looked into your dark heart and said, let there be light. There was no evolution of light in your heart. It was the work of God. God called you. We distinguish in Scripture, rightly following, rightly following Scripture, we distinguish between an inward call and an outward call, right? An outward call is when you're sharing the gospel with someone and you say, hey, you need to believe. Just come, repent. You know, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. That's the outward call. But, but Paul is talking here about the inward work that the Holy Spirit calls the individual, opens their eyes, shines in the light, The person makes a profession of faith. But God has opened their eyes. John 6.44 No one can come to me. This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who, who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Those who are called, he also justified. Justification is the declaration of righteousness before God. It is received through faith. But notice the unbreakable connections here. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he predestined. Those whom he called. Those whom he justified. Those whom he glorified. Some some people call it a, a golden chain. That, that God loses no one along the way. This is not like carrying a handful of sand. And you know how when you pick up sand and it's really dry sand and you, you try to carry it to the sand bucket and, and along the way there's all these little pieces of sand falling out? God doesn't lose His people. And there's this connection here. How can I trust God? He foreknew me. How can I trust God? He predestined me. He called me. He justified me. My salvation is secure because of the work of God. And it says here, those whom He justified, He glorified. Show of hands, how many are glorified already? Okay, that was sort of a trick question. Glorification meaning resurrection bodies. How many are glorified? Anybody? No. Now, we do have the glory of God within us, and, and so that, that would be an appropriate way to speak of it. But, but as he's using glorification, go back again to verse uh, 17. If we, are fellow, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Future tense, right? God's going to do this so we can be glorified. What does Paul say here? Those whom he justified, he what? Glorified. He speaks about a future reality, future from our perspective. But he speaks of it in the past tense. Why? Because your salvation is secure. Why is it secure? Is it because we're so good at hanging on to Christ? Like like we're never going to struggle with our faith and we're just, I got him, he's mine, I'm not letting go. Now hopefully that's how we feel, but there are times in the Christian life where where we don't feel in the moment that way. 
No, it's God grabbed me and he's not letting go. He foreknew me. He predestined me. He called me. Even as Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And so we also will be glorified. Applications this morning. First, who gets the glory in salvation? Who gets all the credit? Scriptures say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We live in a day and age where people like to boast in themselves. If we are followers of the Word of God, if we believe these truths, the last thing we should be doing is boasting. We should be like the most humble people on the planet as God opens our eyes to see these wonderful doctrines of grace. Who saved me? It wasn't me. It was God. What did I bring to the table? Well, I had a few sins. Well, what else did you bring? Well, nothing. Who initiates the relationship? God. Do I need to believe? Do I need to have faith? Yes, absolutely. Do we call people to saving faith? Do we look someone in the eye and say, you need Jesus as your Savior. Believe in Him. Look at what He's done. Yes, absolutely. But some of you know this from your own experience. That people over the years told that to you. And you thought they were stupid. You thought they were ridiculous. You laughed at them. And then one day someone said pretty much the exact same thing. And you went, wow, I really need this. God did that work. And it was like the scales fell off of your eyes. And you saw the glory of God on the face of Christ. That Jesus is Awesome. And this wasn't you getting smarter. This wasn't you becoming a better person so that you could see these things. This was God opening the eyes of your heart and drawing you in. How dare we try to hold back and give some kind of credit to ourselves to God for the work of salvation? In my sin, I am dead. I won't choose God. I don't desire to please God as a sinner. And God loved me and sent His Son to die for me while I was yet a sinner. Now, that's an expression because we know for everybody in this room, Christ actually died before we were all born. And that's the point. God predestined and planned this from before the foundations of the world. Let me ask you this. Who can thwart God's plan? Nobody. But we don't always carry through that logic to every area of our life. We we cling to that when it's convenient. But sometimes that makes truths hard. Can I thwart the plan of God? Not ultimately. Now, I can rebel against God. I can sin against God. That's not an excuse for me to just live however I want. I'm accountable for my actions. But you can't stand before God and say no. God says yes. Who initiates grace? Who sees that grace is accomplished and completed? Second application as we're fleshing some of these things out. Many people today like 
a concept of once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. But they don't follow through on what Scripture connects that to. Scripture connects the security of our salvation to the work of God. That salvation is from start to finish a work of God. And so it's not just, well, once I made the decision to get saved, then I can never lose it because it was up to me to start it, but God will finish it. It is No, God started this. God initiated it. God foreknew me. God predestined me. God called me. Out of God's call, I absolutely believed it was my responsibility, and I did respond. But God has done all of this. And why then am I justified? Is there, is there some inherent value to my faith? Is, is faith some sort of good work that I give back to God? Well, you know, I don't have enough good works, so I'll just have some faith and that, that will be good enough in the eyes of God. No, faith is trust. It's asking for something that you know you can't do. And so God justifies us by grace through faith but not because faith is some sort of merit badge that I give to God. Why am I glorified? At the end of the day, in the Christian life, why is it that I hung on through the hardships, that I stayed firm? It's because God held me. I know that poem, Footprints in the Sand, is cliche. You know, there was one set of footprints. Oh, that was me carrying you. But there's a truth to that. There is a real truth to that. When I get to heaven, it will be because God from start to finish brought me to heaven and worked in my life along the way and conformed me to the image of Christ. And the first step that He works in my life is the step of faith. And I give God the credit for working that in my life. Finally, have confidence here. Again, some theologians call this the golden chain. That what God starts, He finishes. That the same people He foreknew are also the ones that ultimately are the people that He's glorified. Look at verse 31, and we'll go into this next week. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is so for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. If God had just done one of those things, it would be amazing. But He does all five of those things, and that's not even the complete list if you look at Scripture. If God is for you, if He loves you, if He acted on your behalf, if He drew you to Him, you didn't draw God to you, if He drew you to Him, who can be against you? Who can thwart the plan of God? Can Satan come along and rip you out of the arms of God? If God is for you, 
Who can be against you? Nobody. These doctrines hang together. And be careful that we don't pick and choose which ones we like and which ones we don't like. I won't pretend that that some of these topics aren't hard. You think about predestination a lot and you look at all the scriptures and you have to trust scripture, but sometimes trying to trying to work them all together, you just go like, okay, this is what it says, but it gives you a little bit of a headache maybe. But if God is for you, and these are the ways that he is for you, who can be against you? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you today and we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. Certainly these are heavy, weighty topics. Oh, but Lord, just lift us up. Might we see how awesome you are. May we see your glory. That, that we weren't seeking you, but you sought us. And out of that, drew us to yourself so that we would fall in love with you. So that we would place our faith and trust in you. We thank you, Lord, for that love with which you wooed us to yourself, drawing us and moving us to delight in you. We praise you for it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion this morning. And I hope that this is just an awesome morning to take communion. I'd love to preach on the cross of Jesus Christ specifically when we take communion about what his shed blood does and what his uh, broken body does in bearing the curse of sin. But our passage this morning took an even uh, broader picture, if I can say that. That God from start to finish works all of redemption, but at the very center of that is Jesus' death and resurrection. If Jesus had not died, If he had not shed his blood, bearing the curse for our sins, there would be no redemption and forgiveness of sins. I'm going to ask the guys to come down uh, now this morning to pass out uh, communion. Uh, Sean, Jeff, uh, I think Carl, um, uh, Isaac. Okay, we got got our four. Um, As we come to communion this morning, we ask, and not really us, Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? This is not the table of Faith Bible Fellowship Church. This is the table that represents the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. Do you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ where you have said, I am a sinner. Sin leaves me guilty before God, punishable, I need the forgiveness. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, bearing the full weight of the curse of sin, dying under the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And so if you have placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take communion with us this morning. As we're passing out these elements, use this as a time of prayer. Use it as a time of reflection. Do I know who Jesus is? Have I placed my faith and trust in Him? Do I have any sins in my life that I'm, that I'm leaving unconfessed, that I need to, to bring before the throne of grace right now? Take it as a moment of seriousness and a moment of quiet. 
The, the symbols are just that. They're symbols of the bread and the, the body and the blood. And what we mean by that is these things themselves don't save you. When you eat these things, you are symbolically saying, I need Jesus in my life. I need to take into me through faith what he did on that cross. And so Paul says that whenever we celebrate communion, it's actually a preaching. It's a a proclamation. A Guess what? You guys are all preaching the sermon today if you take communion. Because you're saying, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I need to receive him. And I have received him. Let's pray this morning and then we'll pass out the elements. We always just make sure you hold on to it and then we'll pray one more time and we'll, we'll eat together and then do that again for the second element. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we partake of communion today, we pray that you would nourish us spiritually, that you would strengthen us, that you would draw us closer to you, that we would be reminded of all that you have done for us from before the foundations of the world and then even in the fullness of time on the cross. We thank you so much for this working of salvation. And we look forward to the day where you bring it to completion in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Scripture says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray and give thanks. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the symbol of your broken body, which was broken on the cross for us. We thank you so much that you were willing not only to become uh, truly human, but also to have that human body broken on our behalf. We thank you for the work of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood that was spilt on the cross. And we know scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so we thank you for the perfection of your blood that was poured out one time for all sin. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray that as we heard your word today, that we would just adore you all the more, that we would marvel and delight in what you did for us in the working of redemption from before the foundations of the world onward. We give you praise and honor and glory, and even the little glory that we might give to you today doesn't even compare to the infinite worth, the infinite glory and majesty that you have and who you are. Oh God, we want to just adore you. Help us to adore you more and more each day. Draw us closer to you into the fellowship of union and communion. We praise you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit opening our our eyes to see all of these wondrous truths. Oh, we long for the day where we're with you in glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
Yeah, yeah.